Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, there was recently a story in the New York Times. And as I read it, my first reaction was this. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) It was about it, the killer clown. He's back. No, that's not what the story was about. It was about a big fight in a Connecticut school district over whether to locate a mental health clinic in a school. And I want you to do our listeners the service of just sort of describing in the broadest contours what people are arguing about. Well, uh, to, to perhaps oversimplify it, students have said that they need mental health services. They need counseling services. Um, have articulated needs that are both related to the pandemic and unrelated to the pandemic, and have had many sympathetic ears among educators and school board members and parents, but have also been met by some pretty fierce resistance from some parents in the community who have viewed this as an attempt to usurp their parental rights, to brainwash children, to teach children things about race uh, or gender that are abhorrent in their views, um, or to peddle things like birth control. Uh, and so there's there's a view among, you know, what I assume to be a minority of outspoken parents that mental health services are a kind of Trojan horse. That was an excellent summary, Jack. And the reason that I had that reaction was that, one, I am a very excitable person. (laughs) And two, it just happens that I have been reading an excellent book called Mothers of Conservatism by an historian named Michelle Nickerson. She writes about the long history of resistance to mental health on the right. And so my reaction when reading that story was, I bet Jack doesn't know this history. And that immediately caused me to feel very pleased. (laughs) Well, I I don't know that exact history, but I think there are some themes that we've discussed before on the show, which are really relevant. So I think I'm ready to talk about Richard Hofstetter again, uh, as well as to talk about the ongoing uh, backlash against progressivism in the schools. So, you know, uh, be, be prepared uh, for uh, for some intellectual um, parrying, Jennifer. First, a bit of context. That New York Times article I alluded to was called A Mental Health Clinic in School. No thanks, says the school board. Before the Times caught wind of the story, Ginny Monk, a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, did an excellent job chronicling what has become a deep divide in the northeastern Connecticut town of Killingly. The story inspired a lot of intense reactions, one of which came from our guest, historian Michelle Nickerson. I am sitting on my living room sectional. I have my pajamas on, my legs are up. I'm reading the New York Times. I think I'm in the styles or the cultural section and my husband is reading the front page, the front section. And he's like, oh my God, you're gonna wanna read this. And I'm like, 
just set it aside. And then he explained it and I'm like, oh no. So it has been sitting with me ever since. Now, perhaps you're thinking that that was a really strong reaction. Let me explain. Nickerson is the author of a book called Mothers of Conservatism about the 1950s Southern California housewives who really shaped the grassroots right. And as she read about the current conflict over mental health services in schools, she felt like she'd gone back in time, a feeling she's had a lot lately. This is not the only recent moment where I I hear the news and honestly, what it does is it helps me understand the 50s better. I know that's weird, but that's the historian in me is always like experiencing something. And what it does is it puts me in the shoes of the people of the time period. Like I understand that a little bit better. When I wrote the book, I really felt like I was writing about something that was in a different world, a different planet, right? That the 1950s was a time we were past, that we had all learned from the Red Scare, and that it's just not a place you go back to. I have been surprised over and over that, no, you, we can, in fact, go right back there. It's not like we've made so much progress that we can't find ourselves in this incredibly illiberal moment. Mothers of Conservatism began as Nickerson's dissertation, except that she wasn't researching political activism or women on the right. She was actually focused on Alaska as the next frontier of the American West. But thanks to one of her professors, she finds her way to a weird story about an emerging protest movement. All of these women are upset and concerned about a piece of legislation in Congress meant to establish a mental health facility in what was then the territory of Alaska. I figured I would check it out. And I realized before long that the story is not really about Alaska. It is about a conspiracy theory, a conspiracy theory that started in Southern California among a group of housewives, very politicized anti-communist housewives working mainly through their school boards. But someone stumbled on this particular bill and came up with this idea that what it was meant to do was establish a gulag in Alaska, that this was really an attempt by subversives who were essentially duping Congress into thinking that this was going to be for sick people when really it was meant to imprison people who thought the wrong way. Those protests, well, they took Congress by surprise. Suddenly, legislators were getting letters from all over the country warning about this proposed mental health facility in Alaska. Ironically, the facility ended up getting green-lighted thanks to the intervention of none other than Barry Goldwater, but that's an aside for another day. As Nickerson dug into this story, she realized it was about much more than just resistance to a clinic in Alaska. It wasn't just about mental health legislation. Conservatives at the time had developed a much larger ideology about the mind that involved education, mental health, and all kinds of different institutions of American life where they believed that people could be brainwashed and threatened, that these would be places where people on the left could use their power in academe elementary schools, high schools, libraries, and mental health facilities, doctor's offices, they could use their power 
to manipulate minds. Nickerson's research would take her deep into the world of what she calls housewife populism, educated white activists in Southern California who were focused on stemming the tide of communism wherever it lurked, and in the emerging field of mental health. They saw the red menace everywhere. So this is happening right around the same time as not just the Red Scare, but when mental health as a field is developing in a new, a relatively new way that is coming to people's awareness. The idea that the mind is, it's not just a place where you treat problems, but that there is a notion of basically taking care of the mind and making sure that it doesn't go to a place where it needs to be treated. The field itself wanted to treat people outside of psychiatric hospitals. So they set up clinics and programs in a more public health way of of directing messages and resources to people. So if you put that together with the fact that many Americans are very afraid of communism, and then add that to the fact that many people who are very educated and in fields like psychiatric medicine and academe tend to be liberals. Basically, what you saw happen was they put two and two together and got 10. Mental health became a term that the right seized on, a sort of vague catch-all for all sorts of fears and grievances. And if that sounds familiar, it should. They use that word to explain a whole set of developments that they thought were insidious and dangerous and controlled by elites in the medical fields. And so a conspiracy theory was a way for people to conceptualize, to try and come up with an explanation. It took me a while to see that what their language was and and how it came to be that way. But I, I, you know, we're seeing it all over again. So Jack, as our regular listeners know, there are two topics that you return to time and time again. One is, of course, the grammar of schooling. (laughs) And the other is Richard Hofstetter's essay, the, is it the paranoid mind? The, the paranoid, paranoid style. style in American politics, yes. yeah. And so as I was getting to work on this episode and reading Michelle's book and then having the opportunity to talk to her, I knew that this was going to be an opportunity for you to dwell <laughs> at hopefully not too long of a length on, on a topic that you think that is really relevant not just to sort of our, you know, the general moment we find ourselves in, but to this fight over mental health. Yeah, right. So, you know, I think there's there's a lot that I talk about repeatedly on this show, including... Nope, the, only two things. The apprenticeship of observation. Oh, three. Yeah, right. School quality. Mm-hmm. Four. Yeah, okay. I could keep going. But uh, <laughs> but I think the, the paranoid style is really relevant here. Uh, what Hofstetter was doing was talking about the the important role that a kind of boogeyman plays, particularly in conservative politics, although occasionally on the left, in terms of creating uh, an opposition that is intent on destroying a valued way of life, such as to motivate people through fear uh, and to use, you know, some spurious evidence to try to illustrate for people that there is a clear and present danger that is being posed to them and often 
to their children. And that's why schools are often dragged in to these culture war issues, because young people are, as I have mentioned many times on this show, symbolic in this country, right? We're not just literally talking about making the future when we are talking about schools and education policy, but there's this important symbolic role that young people play in this country as well as around the world in terms of trying to frame innocence as something that is under threat. And it's not surprising to me that counseling would be used as a kind of Trojan horse or a black box around which to rally fear and paranoia because you can see that counseling could be framed as it has been in some cases as an opportunity for brainwashing or mind control and that very much squares with some of the far-right activity uh, that we saw in the 1950s and 60s around the Red Scare, right? Some of the organizing done was really motivated by the threat that people would be brainwashed, um, and young people particularly were vulnerable to this. And so you can see an attack being mounted against counseling if it's happening in the schools, if parents aren't present, if it's not being documented, right? And if that, of course, would be for the sake of student privacy, um, then who is to know what's happening inside uh, that counseling room with the door closed? A second piece there, which potentially poses a threat to you know, existing norms, would be anything having to do with race, gender, or identity messages. And we can see how that would be of particular interest to conservatives right now at this moment. And again, this idea that young people at this vulnerable time in their lives, behind closed doors and without their parents present, could be given messages about their racial or gender identities that would not square with the messages that they're being given at home. Again, we've seen this before. We've talked about it on this show with regard to LGBTQ plus issues. A third strand here would be issues related to sex, birth control, abortion. Again, this is not new in American politics. It's not new in politics as they have played out in and around schools. And so opposition to sex education or discussions about reproduction uh, in the schools are not quite a century old, but are more than half a century old. Um, concerns about birth control or other forms of contraceptive being handed out in schools. Again, those are not new. Concerns about abortion and teaching about abortion. Again, not new. And we can see that, you know, these old culture war uh, standbys, right, about um, political brainwashing, about race and gender identity, and about sex and reproductive rights continue to come up over and over, and we can see that it would be easy to position counselors as people in a position to undermine a way of life that you value or threaten your parental rights as you believe them to exist. Back to Michelle Nickerson and the mothers of conservatism. Mental health was not the only issue that animated these 1950s housewife populists. When they looked at their local schools, they found another galvanizing cause. That would be progressive education. I kept finding references to progressive education and the dangers of progressive education. I would then do research in progressive education, and I found that in the early 1950s, it really wasn't so much a thing. 
that progressive education, of course, was this big movement from the early 20th century. And yeah, people were still influenced by it, but it had developed and gone in all these different directions. But it became a handle, a way for critics to describe a broad development of trends in education and then label it as dangerous. So it's like critical race theory, right? Except back then they used the word progressive education to describe any number of things happening in their schools, whether they were real, they really had anything to do with the movement at all. For example, desegregation. They realized, oh, people who favor progressive education methods are also trying to desegregate the schools. They're trying to bus our children, you know, they want to get them into other neighborhoods. This is not a coincidence because desegregation is a progressive thing. So we're going to call all of that progressive education. We're going to use that word progressive educator as another way of saying communist or subversive. Education, not indoctrination, became one of the activists' chief rallying cries. If that sounds familiar, well, it should. These Southern California housewives, who would prove to be so influential in shaping the grassroots conservative movement, were organizing around the very same cause we're hearing about so much right now, parents' rights. The way we're reading about it in the newspapers now, is it's as if like this is a new form of activism, that somehow conservatives have woken up, right, to the fact that there are all these elites running around trying to control their children and that, well, then we need to respond, right? We need to take care of our families. We have to get better control over our own institutions. And of course, when I hear that, it takes me right back to how that word was used in exactly the same way in the 50s, parental control. The idea that other people from outside were trying to come in and change the minds, brainwash children, and do things that they themselves, if, if parents really knew what was happening, then parents would be all over it. Now, if you're a regular listener to this show, the idea that parents' rights is an old cause is not news to you. But as Nickerson discovered, the 1950s-era version of parent rights, or parent control, was already a retread. In doing my own research, I found that even back in the 50s, it wasn't new. They didn't use the word parental control so much in the early part of the 20th century. But after World War I, there were plenty of anti-communists who saw the federal government as a danger to the family. And they were doing what they could to keep the federal progressive, at that point, progressive state from passing any legislation that would infringe on what they saw as the rights of their family and the role of parents to protect children. What I said in my book was that in the second Red Scare, the Cold War era, that this is a, a reconstitution of an old ideology. Reading Mothers of Conservatism can feel positively disorienting because these scenes from the 1950s are playing out again right now almost unaltered. It made me wonder if, say, groups like Moms for Liberty or Parents Defending Education know about their earlier incarnations. Nickerson says that it's not a surprise that we see this form of activism emerging decade after decade. This stuff is in the air. They are hearing in the news about how the government is a problem. They've been hearing this since the Reagan era. 
the government is getting in the way of not just business, but church life, everything else. And so I feel like it's a pretty natural then reaction to say, well, who am I? Who am I? I'm just a mom. And then you realize, oh, there are other moms who think like I do. Well, maybe we have something to say about masks in our school. And maybe we have something to say together about forced vaccination, right? And so I think that when you put those things together, we are moms and we have responsibilities that go beyond putting food on the table. Then I feel like it, it's really no surprise that the same trends are, we're going to see them over and over. We kicked off this episode by talking about a particular battle over mental health in schools, one playing out right now in Killingly, Connecticut. In many ways, it's an old story. But Nickerson says that the shifting landscape around what schools do has provided new fuel for an old cause. Schools over the past however many years have been concerned about the mental health of their children especially children who are suffering in schools and having behavioral problems as a result. Many schools have developed not just programs and tools, but they hire staff who specialize in social emotional issues, who are responsible for the relationships between kids, who are responsible for bullying. And so that there's already this infrastructure built into schools that parents may or may not have have noticed or found to be a problem in the past. But when you put that together with the fact that now those staff seem to be growing, schools are talking about creating and facilities right in the schools, then parents often who feel like their schools are under-resourced to begin with, and they themselves maybe don't have any control It's something that they don't know and they don't feel like their kids need and it's being imposed on them. And so there is obviously then a reaction. And also, of course, put it together with the fact that most of the people who do that work, who create those programs are liberals. It's not a conservative response to set up these facilities. And so, again, it's putting two with two and getting 10. The housewife populist crusade against mental health services eventually ran out of steam. That Alaska facility, well, it got built. But Nickerson thinks that this time around, things look very different. The conservative backlash against mental health services in schools isn't going anywhere. Now, mental health facilities are going to be in schools. There is a new curriculum focused on minds. And since people can be elected to school boards, then, of course, they can assert their power and they have some say. Parents can go to school board meetings. The other difference is red state, blue state. The polarization now is so much different. And so these parents are going to be effective in some places and not others. I think that parents are going to have more success in Texas and Arizona and Indiana than they are going to have in Illinois or New Jersey or other places. But as Connecticut is showing us, you know, you can have these pockets of red in the middle of blue. You know, states are more purple than anything else. It's just that they're not going to get the same kind of support at the state level. Their representatives in the legislature, their governors in the Northeast are not going to be as receptive as the Texas legislature or governor to what's happening. 
So one of the things that I absolutely loved about Michelle's book was that she paints this incredibly vivid picture of a time and a place that I didn't know much about, right? The housewife populace in the 50s in and around LA. But it's so instantly familiar. And Jack, I'm going to read just a couple of sentences to you and I'm going to name drop somebody that I didn't know about, but I'm guessing that you know who he is. In the 1930s, a conservative at Columbia's Teachers College by the name of William Chandler Bagley had founded the Essentialists, a small group that charged progressives with making U.S. education, quote, effeminate. American children, argued Bagley, had become inferior spellers and readers because they lacked the essentials or three R's of learning. I read that and I felt like he could be writing a new book that's coming out next week. (laughs) Yeah, William Bagley. He's the hero of uh, Diane Ravitch's book, Left Back, which is now a quarter century old. Um, So Diane, prior to changing her mind about these things, lifted up Bagley as an exemplar of somebody who pushed back against fads, who stood up against watering down the traditional academic curriculum. And if people are interested in Bagley, um, he is uh, all over the educational historiography um, and often positioned as somebody who has been overlooked. Uh, So there's a kind of irony there um, that many of these stories about Bagley are about how Bagley has not gotten sufficient coverage in educational histories. Uh, Bagley taught at Teachers College at Columbia, and that was the mecca for uh, progressivism in the early 20th century and remained so for a few decades and was surrounded by people like John Dewey, George Counts, William Kilpatrick. Kilpatrick famous for his project method. Counts famous for uh, a long essay called dare the schools to build a new social order. And so Kilpatrick was surrounded by these people who were trying to encourage us to re-envision the role of the school in society, right, as um, an institution that would not merely reproduce the social order, but would actually make a new kind of society for us, uh, surrounded by people who were viewing the process of education as being more important than the content, uh, and people who were making the case that actually um, it kind of didn't matter what was happening in schools, that what mattered was uh, that young people were involved in real and authentic kinds of activity, that they were supported by caring adults, and that they were engaged in work that was appropriate for their developmental stages. Now we can see that there was, you know, some overreach uh, from some of these progressive educators at the time, and and they certainly weren't all at Columbia. Uh, But, you know, there's also an important story here about conservatives making the case, telling a story about the decline of American education, right? This is one of the oldest stories in American educational history, is the story of decline, the story of regress, the story of how we once had a system built around high standards, built around rigor, built around rich content, and that because we've watered it down, our democracy is now at risk. Uh, Increasingly, we've been saying our economic competitiveness is also at stake. 
And if we look seriously at some of the evidence that we have available to us, right, that's not really the story. The story is not that we once had this fabulous, rigorous system that served all young people well and that it has simply eroded uh, with the, the weathering forces of progressivism. That's not the story, but you can see how that would be a powerful story to tell if what you were trying to say was that folks on the left have been steadily eating away at a cherished way of life that has been supported through the public education system. Back to Michelle Nickerson, in many ways, Mothers of Conservatism is a story about winning the war while losing the battle. While these activists were ultimately unsuccessful in their crusade against the emerging field of mental health, they helped seed a conservative movement, the legacy of which we're living through right now. And while the shifting political climate pulled their attention away from schools, it was never for long. By the time you get to 1970, conservatives are losing ground in Los Angeles County and Orange County. They're still there. They just don't have the power that they did. Also, it's not the Red Scare anymore, so they can't red hunt the way they used to. So they're turning to other issues. A lot of those issues tend to be more religious. They're, you know, they're focused on feminism and the Equal Rights Amendment. They're focused on taxes. There's a tax revolt happening. And so there are other places where they can be more effective. But it's not like concerns about education go away. But the most lasting legacy of these conservative activists, well, it may lie in the demise of any kind of progressive education movement. One district at a time, they took aim at progressive reformers with remarkable success. And this raises big questions about what things might look like, both in and out of schools, were it not for these mothers of conservatism. I'm going to read a quote from the book because I'm still thinking about it. Quote, such a victory raises questions about how women shaped political history through the minds of schoolchildren. Since the social reform agenda of the progressive education movement might have become a liberal force in post-war history, had conservatives not killed it, end quote. But kill it they did, rallying again and again to oppose a long list of familiar targets. The other thing that got talked about was the education of the whole child. And you know, this is a concept that dates back decades earlier. That set off alarms because then conservatives saw this as a way of trying to reform children and to make them into not just liberals, but to train them to think differently about race and sex, kind of the way critical race theory is being talked about right now. I don't have to tell you, critical race theory is a pretty abstract way of studying the law and literature. And what conservatives are really talking about when they use that word CRT, that acronym, they're talking about anti-racist education. That, of course, is happening everywhere. The reason to call it that is because critical race theory comes out of universities. And so it's an easy way to think about it as being elitist and top-down and dangerous. The longer I do this podcast, the more convinced I am about just how essential it is to know our history, especially education history. Don't tell my co-host I said that. Well, Nickerson takes it a step further. She challenges us to not just learn about the movements like the one she chronicles in Mothers of Conservatism, but to really try to understand what drove them. That, she says, will help us make sense of our own crazy present. One of the things that I say in my book 
is, you know, I'm still pretty convinced of is that the people that I studied were not crazy. They themselves were not just pretty mentally healthy. They were smart. They knew what they were doing and that it's dangerous for us to characterize all of them as hysterical. I feel like living through the pandemic has given me more perspective on this because what I saw happen is a nation collectively lose its mind. And I feel like I understand now that characterization in the 50s. What you see is kind of anxiety on a mass scale and anxiety that fuels more anxiety where everybody is attacking each other. And I am as guilty as anyone else. I was easily triggered in social media. I was triggering other people and it would get increasingly more pitched and dangerous. My comments on social media were not convincing anybody to change their minds. I was preaching to the choir. I was basically venting and screaming. So now I feel like, all right, I understand the 50s a little bit better. I see what mass anxiety can do. That was Michelle Nickerson. She's an associate professor of history at Loyola University, Chicago, and the author of Mothers of Conservatism, Women and the Post-War Right. Definitely check it out. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about how the school wars could be, wait for it, even worse. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers, all of those bans on CRT that have been enacted. Is it possible that they could backfire spectacularly? If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. But first, here's a little announcement from our friends at the Human Restoration Project about an event that you don't want to miss. Conference to Restore Humanity is an invitation for K-12 and college educators to engage in a human-centered system reboot, centering the needs of students and educators toward a praxis of social justice. The traditional conference format doesn't work for everyone. It's costly to attend, environmentally unfriendly, and it doesn't allow everyone to engage or have a voice in the learning community. Our conference is designed around the accessibility and sustainability of virtual learning, while engaging participants in a classroom environment that models the same progressive pedagogy we value with students. Instead of long Zoom presentations with a brief Q&A, keynotes are flipped, and attendees will have the opportunity for extended conversation with our speakers, Dr. Henry Giroux, the founding theorist of critical pedagogy, Dr. Denisha Jones, educator, activist, and co-editor of Black Lives Matter at School, and the Circle Keepers from Harvest Collegiate High School in New York City, a student collective focused on social justice. And instead of back-to-back -back online workshops, we are offering asynchronous learning tracks. You can engage with the content and the community at any time on topics like anti-carceral pedagogy, disrupting linguistic discrimination, designing for neurodivergence, promoting childism in the classroom, and supporting feedback over grades. The Conference to Restore Humanity runs July 25th through the 28th. See our website, humanrestorationproject.org for more information and let's restore humanity together. So Jack, I think that a lot of people, when they read that story in the Times or perhaps the earlier story in the Connecticut Mirror about the fight over the mental health cl clinic in that Connecticut town, were really surprised. Like, 
how is it that at a time when kids clearly need more support, how can we be fighting about this? But you had a very different reaction. You think that you're actually surprised that we're not fighting about even more. Oh my gosh. I mean, if if grown-ups were in the schools with young people, the number of things that we would demand to have changed immediately and and that we would all be in disagreement with each other about, right? Some of us would want more of something. Others would want less. Um, we'd be out front holding, you know, contrasting picket signs. And I think, you know, it's frankly pretty amazing that we don't spend all of our time arguing about what schools do and how they operate. And I think there are two reasons for why that's the case. One is that we just accept that school is a part of ordinary life. And we have a vision of what Mary Metz called, quote unquote, real school. And that can actually really get in the way uh, of trying to change education, of trying to bring about a sort of better, more humane version of public education is that we have this fairly fixed idea in our collective consciousness about what a school is and what a school does. And the upside of that is that it keeps us from arguing, right? Because it's actually invisible to us in many cases. It's so well accepted. And then the other half of that is that we're not inside the schools, right? For many of us, um, we simply don't know what's happening inside the schools. And I often talk about that as a problem, right? It's an opportunity for those who want to paint a negative picture of our schools, who want to portray teachers as bad actors, who have access to young people. But there's an upside to that as well, and that is that because we aren't always apprised of the nitty-gritty details, we don't spend our time arguing about what's happening, right? We know just sort of the broad outline of what's going on in schools. We get the, you know, 30-second snippet version from our kids about what happened that day. But because we are often external to the details and the particular processes as they unfold in schools, we don't tend to fight about what's happening inside. And, and that's, that's really amazing when you consider the fact that there are 50 million kids in public schools. Uh, there are, you know, 100,000 schools that we could be fighting over, 13,000 school districts that we could be showing up to school board meetings and protesting. And so the fact that uh, for, you know, 180 days a year, it's mostly pretty quiet from uh, parents and families and community members. You know, that can be a problem as well. Um, but I think it's also something that um, without which the system really couldn't function. I think that's such an interesting point because as listeners know, I've been, you know, I'm on this one person crusade to try to point out to people that for all the talk about the Republicans mining parent outrage for electoral gold, that this, this is falling short. Your, what you laid out just there is a huge part of the reason that people are deeply uncomfortable with the idea of making schools another political minefield, right? That they, you, you see that in states where they don't currently have partisan elections for school boards and politicians are trying to change that, people are reacting very strongly. Like, leave this space <laughs> to be, you know, an area where we're not fighting all of the time. And you see that the the percentage of of parents who are, who are enraged um, is, is actually quite a minority. In fact, I saw there was a story from ProPublica that I saw 
people sharing like mad over the past few days about a DEI director in Georgia who was basically chased out of her job by an angry mob of white parents. And then when she got another job elsewhere in Georgia, they, you know, they chased her out of that one too. And what got kind of buried in the story and what I think people didn't realize was that that same crew that that demonized this woman, well, they also then ran for office and they were, they got absolutely trounced um, by Republican voters. And we really need to think about that because I think that the, the narrative is still that somehow this is a winning cause for Republicans. But when you actually look at the details, what you laid out, Jack, turns out to be not just true, but also really important. I'm going to just take that out of context and make that my ringtone when you call, Jennifer. Jack, of course, our regular listeners are aware that this is the time in the episode where I try to lead people over the paywall. We rely on their support to keep the podcast going and and pay our excellent producer. And I typically try to tantalize them into making that leap by by introducing a topic so interesting, so provocative <laughs> that they can't resist but going to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and becoming a supporter so that they can then join us in the weeds. But today we're going to do something different. You're the one who's going to lure them. Right. Like a good capitalist, you outsourced this, right? It's not your core business. And so you're trying to uh, to bring on an external contractor uh, who you don't have to hire as a full employee and give benefits to. Um, I'll, just, I'll just note that we may go on strike. Uh, so you've been notified there. So I was talking to Boston University law professor John Feingold about an idea that he has been shopping around, trying to get a little traction on. And I think it's a really smart one. And it's that the rhetoric around the anti-CRT bills that are out there floating around and in some cases being passed is that they are going to stop the teaching of race inside the classroom. But as John reads them, uh, the bills actually mandate that educators teach about race. So there's an interesting paradox. We'll talk about it in the weeds, and I'm not going to give it away. I've read the terms of my employment that you gave me, Jennifer, and I am not going to get myself terminated here by spilling the beans. Um, but uh, uh, if you're interested in that, follow us over the paywall uh, into the weeds, and you'll learn more about that. And now, Jennifer, somebody needs, we need a contractor to come on and tell people about the various kinds of ways they can participate in an anti-capitalist uh, grassroots democracy. Well, alas, our budget only allows for one contractor. So <laughs> so uh, leave us a five-star review so it's easier for people to find the pod and keep sharing it and keep sending your excellent ideas. I absolutely love them and we have a whole, uh, whole bunch of them coming. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 